invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, where we read just a little bit ago. Just a little mini-series on Christmas. Christmas is the only Christian holy day and is also a major secular holiday. Arguably, arguably probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest. And because of that, it results in basically two different celebrations, each observed by millions of people. Secular festivities um, avoid any references, usually, to Christian origins of Christmas. Um, even as I go around to different stores, I'm in different places, I find the music is more often moving away from joy to the world to have a holly jolly Christmas. It's now promoted in the secular world as a time for family, a time for giving, a, lot, a time for peace in the world. And because of, as Pastor Dave prayed, the commerciality of Christmas, I fear that at times, even as Christians, we're losing the roots and the meaning of Christmas is what I want to speak about this Sunday and next. Um, the meaning of Christmas in the Bible the emphasis on that light came into darkness. And that comes from a Christian belief, a biblical belief, that the world's hope uh, comes into the darkness and outside of the darkness. And that is exactly, to give you a little bit of context, the message that Israel needed to grasp in the context of the Christmas prophecy that we read. Um, Isaiah 9 is a prophecy ultimately about Jesus that happened 700 years before his birth. But the message is the same. Ahaz is the king of Israel at this time, and he's got a dilemma because Assyria, which is a ruthless nation, is on the rise and is becoming the most powerful nation of the world. Because of that, the nations that are closer to Israel are very afraid, they are scared, and so they come to Ahaz and they send a messenger and they say we want to make a coalition we want to make an alliance and they want Ahaz and Israel to join them so they all can put their forces together and fend off Assyria if they would come but Ahaz is not into that he doesn't like any of those nations that are near him and so he refuses in fact they get so upset by that refusal that they want to actually plan an assassination so they can kill him and put on the throne another king that would actually agree with that alliance. So he's going through all that, but very shortly after that offer, he gets an offer from Assyria. Assyria, which is across the other side of the desert, uh, they're offering that and asking Ahaz to side with them, to make a coalition so that Israel and Assyria can go against all the other nations and, and take them over. But he doesn't like that because he hates Assyria, and so he doesn't want that either. And it's at that very time that the prophet Isaiah sent from the Lord comes to Ahaz and says that God has an offer for him. And God says, don't join either one of those coalitions, but instead make your alliance and your allegiance only to me and I will protect you. I'll take care of you against all the other forces put together. And believe it or not, Ahaz doesn't like that either because he understands this, that if I side with God... That means I have to obey his word. And he's really not interested. And so in the passage leading up to the familiar parts that we uh, understand at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, it's a time of darkness. Um, that's what's taking place 
and Ahaz and in Israel. And God says, well, even though you don't want my protection, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign is recorded in Isaiah 7, 14. And it reads like this. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you and shall be called his name Emmanuel. Well, that has to sound familiar to you, because that's the prophecy that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, to talk about the birth of Jesus. You can see in the text for yourself, can you not, that this prophecy of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son and calling him, it has a near fulfillment in Isaiah's day, but also has a far fulfillment, 700 years later, an ultimate fulfillment that is in Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you that foreshadowing Jesus' birth and his coming into the darkness, he sent a prophecy way back in the day, 700 years earlier, about people in Israel who were in darkness, a darkness of their own. And they were up for a, they were into a battle. They were surrounded by enemies. And the answer for Israel, the question for Israel, how would they respond to the darkness? And And to be honest with you, that's the question that's posed to all of us this morning. I mean, what will you do with the darkness that surrounds you? And and they were going to be in difficult days, dark days. They were in for a battle for their life. That's why, if I can point them out to you real quickly, there's so much military language in our text. Our text is actually framed by and bracketed by a phrase in verse 18 and chapter 9 and verse 7, and it's the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a military term in Hebrew. It means Lord of the heavenly armies. And that's how this passage begins, and that's how it ends, because this is a military scenario. That's what Ahaz sees it at. He's surrounded, and the darkness is the darkness that is outside the walls of Israel, the Assyrians and the other nations who want to bring them down. But the Lord of hosts is the one who is there. Not only that, but it says in chapter 8 and verse 21, if you look there, it says that they will be greatly distressed and hungry. See, they are going to be in a famine. They're going to be sieged, and they're going to close the walls. And when the enemy surrounds them, they're going to be short, have shortages of food, and they're going to be desperate. See, that, those are things that happen when you are sieged. And in verse 9, chapter 3, it says, but God can give you the ability to divide the spoil with him. Take the winnings from war. That's another battle term. In chapter 9 and verse 4, he says that God's going to come as in the day of Midian. You remember the battle when Gideon and the crazy methodology that God gave him the victory? He says, see, that's how it's going to be when God comes. And lastly, chapter 9 and verse 5, he says that the boot of the warrior in battle, he talks about the robe dipped in blood. That's their armor and all the things they had. It's a military scenario. Because here's what God wants us to get. He wants us in Israel to see that we are in a battle. It's a battle against darkness. And see, that's what's happening in this Christmas prophecy. And that's what is happening in the day in which we live. If you look at chapter 18, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, the prevailing motif in that verse, those verses, is darkness. Can you see it there? Will you notice it? And, And darkness... And the Bible, hear me out, is always about two things. It's either about moral evil or intellectual evil that refuses to believe truth. So there's doctrinal darkness and there is moral darkness. There are dark beliefs 
And there are dark behaviors, and both are going on in Israel when the Christmas prophecy is given. There are doctrinal darknesses, and here's what I mean by that. They don't seek answers from God for their problems. Look at the text. It says in chapter 8, it says in verse 19, And when they say to you, inquire of mediums and of necromancers or who chirp and mutter, these are spiritualists. These are people who are calling up demons. These are people who are asking for special revelation from Satan, basically, in the end. These are people who are forbidden by Levitical law to even exist in Israel. But they're asking for their answers from demons and from the dead people that they think could give them answers, but they're not turning to God. They're, see, there's doctrinal darkness, moral darkness, because they have a king in Ahaz who knows that God offers him a victory and has even given him a sign, but Ahaz is so wicked that he has wants nothing, absolutely nothing to do with God. See, that's the kind of darkness that surrounds the Christmas prophecy. It doesn't take a lot of imagination, does it? to say that we have lived through some pretty dark days of our own in 2020. Americans have been people who are armed for a battle, and we have to be because we're battling a pandemic. I mean, we're waiting for a vaccination. I mean, but it's not just that, is it? I mean, that is obviously huge. But there are repercussions. There are things that have been triggered by the pandemic medically here in America um, there are dangers and darkness outside of our walls. Um, psychological pandemic. I read an author this week that said, with the daily doses of death surrounding us, isolation and fears generating all around us, widespread emotional upheaval, that we are a frightened people. I read statistics this week that federal agencies and expert warns that we are not only in for a medical crisis, but another major crisis as a result of the medical crisis. And you can begin to see it all around. It's a crisis of depression. It's a crisis of, of substance abuse and worry and fear and anxiety. I mean, I hate to even say it, but suicide is almost at an all-time high. Online therapy is up 65% every single day since COVID started. So there's a psychological pandemic. There's a financial pandemic. People are worried about the future of their jobs, of the businesses they have, whether they're going to be able to pay their mortgages. They're going to have to move. They're going to have to get a different car. They're going to have to go way down the status uh, and, the, and their status because of their finances. There's a social pandemic. I mean, I, it's, it's gut-wrenching and, and, and it brings tears to your eyes to hear people's Stories in hospitals where they can't visit their loved ones and they can't even see them or be with them at times at the moment of their death. And then funerals are so sparsely allowed to be attended. It's a time of loneliness and quarantine. I mean, these are dark days, are they not? There's enemies from the outside and there are enemies from the inside. It's about as dark as we've experienced in a long, long time. I read a true story this week in preparation for this message about a couple in Toronto, Canada in 2015, about five years ago. And a few days, including on Christmas Day, they were without powder power. There was a, a huge ice storm in Toronto and they had a blackout. 
They had no power for two or three days leading up to Christmas on Christmas Day and the day after. And when they were interviewing this couple whose name was Vic and Gisela, here's what they said. For us this year, there is no Christmas. Listen, listen to this. The plan this year is a can of chicken soup boiled over a gas camping stove. My wife is so depressed, she took the Christmas tree apart and put it away. You know what she says? For them, there is no Christmas. Why? Because Christmas is in the dark this year. It's in a blackout. See, if that's, the, if that's the meaning of Christmas you're going by, and if you're following the secular meaning of Christmas, then when dark days come and there's a blackout of all kinds of blackouts, see, you, you cancel Christmas. Why? Because Christmas and the meaning and the message of it can't change your darkness. But see, if you take the true Christmas story and you take the biblical meaning of Christmas, see, you don't have to cancel Christmas. No, why? Because the first Christmas, the real Christmas, happened in the dark. That's what Christmas means. It means that the world is a dark place. And it's dark for everyone. And it's darkness all around us. Just like it was in the prophecy 700 years before. And just like it was when Jesus was born into this world. We live in a world of darkness. So much so that in Isaiah 8.22, there are three Hebrew words used for darkness. The first one is the typical one. The second one is translated gloom. It's only used here and, and in chapter 9, verse 1 of Isaiah. The only two pl- references to it. The third one is a devastating one, and it's thick darkness. Literally, in the Hebrew text, utter darkness. It's used 12 times in the Old Testament. One in chapter Isaiah 60, verse 2, which reads, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. And every time the, th- the phrase, thick bar- the word th- thick darkness is used, it's used to describe people who are under the devastation and the judgment of God. So this isn't just social things. This isn't just things going on outside. This is things that are eternal. This is God's judgment and devastation on people who doctrinally and morally have turned away from him. See, that was Israel's problem. Israel's problem was, in their problems, they didn't look to find God as the answer. They turned to their own false sources of wisdom Instead of looking to God, they turned their faces upward, verse 21 says, and they looked to God and their king in contempt. They said, hey, we can't look to them because they're not the true source. But here's what it says, look at this. And they, instead, they looked to the earth, verse 22, it says. Did you see that? Do you see what their answer was? The answer in their darkness and the answer in their problems was themselves. They looked into the darkness to find an answer to the darkness. They looked into the world and their military might or their strength or their own wisdom to find it. See, they thought that they could save themselves from the darkness. When I was in Bible college, I think it was my junior year in 1985, there was, I don't know if you remember this or not, there was the Live Aid concert. And there was all kinds of celebrities singing on the stage and going through all this stuff. And in it, they sing a song, all of them together at the same time. I think it was toward the end of the concert. Here are the words the song says. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start giving. You see what they're singing? 
We are the ones who make a brighter day. If our darkness is going to have any bright spot, if it's going to get light in here, if there's going to be any light, you know, who, you know where it's coming from? From us. We make the brighter day. And see, that's not the meaning of Christmas. That is a secular understanding of Christmas. The biblical meaning of Christmas in Isaiah is this. In Isaiah 8, Israel's under a famine. They are going to be under siege. They are going to be afraid. They're going to be crushed by anxiety. And they're going to be crushed by emotionally and psychologically difficult times. And in fact, it says they're going to be distressed and anguished and gloom. That's the reality of it is. And the answer to all the darkness is not that we're going to brighten the day. We need someone else outside of our darkness to brighten the day. What about you this morning? As you're here in person or you're watching, where do you look in your darkness? Do you look upward or do you look inward? You see, for Israel, it was mediums, necromancers, spiritualists, Fast forward to the 21st century, for some it's Oprah and Dr. Phil, Richard Rohr, Joel Olstein. Some people find that they're going to look into to find the light. You know what's going to save us from our darkness? The government, the president, technology, science. They're putting all their hope in a vaccine. That'll make the world brighter, a lighter place. In the end, Human resources can never fix what's really wrong in the world. You cannot, by being good, save yourself. Many years ago, there was a New York Times ad, and it read this at Christmas. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Can I tell you? It's a lie. It's a lie. The world cannot put together a world of unity and peace, and we will never have the ability in of ourselves to change the darkness into light. Because here's what the New York Times ad is preaching, that we have the light within us. We just have to work harder at it, and we can dispel the gloom and the darkness and the thick darkness. And the meaning of the message of Christmas, the true Christmas, is that the world and the human lives are a dark place. And the more you look for your solutions in the darkness, the darker things become. And that is why it is such a message of hope in chapter 8 and verse 20. Can you read it with me? To the teaching and to the testimony. These two verses, 8, 20, and 21, are the, were the credo or the motto verses of my seminary that I attended in Minneapolis, Minnesota. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have, listen to this, they have no dawn. And the word dawn means the break of day, but metaphorically it meant they have no future. See, you're, you're asking all the wrong people to give you the answers because there's no future in those answers. You can't look to the sources of wisdom that the world offers to find light in the darkness. You know why? There's no dawn in them. There's no light in them. There is no future in them. There is no light for the world outside of God's word. There is no light for the world who is bound in darkness outside of God's sons. Don't you see that, the meaning of Christmas? Don't you understand? Look around. Why are all the people running to the mystics? Why are people on Cooser, not Cooser Road, but over, having their palms read? 
Why are people looking at their horoscopes? Why do people run off to the politicians and to the therapists and think that, you know why? Because they're running to these people because they think that they can find light in them. That there's light to be had and, and, and that that perhaps can shine in their darkness and give meaning to their lives. And when they find out that it's all a hoax and a lie, they're killing themselves. And there's a spike in suicides, and there's a reason why. Because when you turn to the darkness to find the answer to darkness, it is hopeless. The meaning of Christmas, the meaning of this Christmas prophecy is that there's only one light. And I know that's not popular in the world in which we live. It's very exclusive, but it's the most helpful thing that you could hear this morning. And that is there's one light for our darkness, and that light is God. So let me close this morning by briefly telling you two things about the original Christmas light. And they are found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. And we're going to take them in reverse order and unpack them just briefly. Can I do this with you? First look at verse 2. It says, let me read it again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them, notice it, light has shone. They are walking in darkness. And listen, you can be here this morning and you can deny the darkness. You can say, hey, you know, it's not that I have no problems or no sins in my life, but, you know, I'm not as bad as a lot of other people. And the scripture is very careful to describe these people as people who walk in the darkness. It's not that they're just tinged by it a little bit. It's not just an event or two. It's not just a bad thing they might say or do or think once in a while. No, they walk in it. See, that's depravity. It's not that you are as bad off as you could be, but you really are as bad off as you could be. But not that you live it every day, but you are. You are as bad off as you can be because depravity affects everything. It's a lifestyle. It's what you walk in. Every person in this world apart from Jesus Christ walks in darkness. In fact, it goes on to say, parallel statement, they dwell in a land of deep darkness. Listen, to deep darkness. It's not just superficial. It's not just a little bad behavior. It's not that you just need some sort of modification on the outside. No, it's far deeper than that. The darkness goes deep. It penetrates every single aspect of what it means to be a human being. That's how bad the darkness is. But God has an answer for that. He says, the darker the night, the greater the light. And the verse says that people who are walking and living in this deep darkness, listen to this, have seen a mega light. They've seen a great light. Did you get that? Did you, listen, they didn't, they didn't generate the light. They didn't ignite or kindle the light. They discovered the light. The light came to where they were. It says they have seen it. It, it came to where they were in their darkness. And it says later on, and that light has shone on them. In other words, they'd still be in the darkness if the light itself hadn't found them. If, it did, if they, they only discovered it because God brought it to them. See, it's not a light that's developed from inside. It's discovered from the outside. That's the message and meaning of Christmas. That the light in our darkness is far beyond us. It's God intervening. It's God bringing light into our darkness. The commentator on Isaiah, Alec Motyer, said this, 
all the activity in the verbs in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, they're all on God's side. In other words, the, the fact that there is light in the darkness at all is because of God, nothing to do with us. So there are two ways that everyone in this room and everyone is watching today, there are two ways that people deal with the darkness. They either try to find it from the light from within, or they try to discover it in a light from without, and that is namely God. The thing about the true Christmas story is that the true Christmas story doesn't deny the reality of the darkness. It doesn't deny the reality that we're in a pandemic of all kinds and shapes and sizes. It doesn't deny that whatsoever. But it also doesn't deny the fact that the light comes from and can conquer and defeat it, and that light can only come from God. You can't get it any other way. So let me say it to you straight. Trying to be a good person can't save you. You know why? There's no dawn in that. There is no dawn in your righteousness. See, trying to be a person who comes to church on a regular basis, and it doesn't matter what kind of church, Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, Presbyterian, whatever. See, see, there's no dawn in being a church-going religious person. There's no light in it. There's no future in it in your religiosity. See, giving money to help the church, to, to give donations when the guy rings the bell outside of Walmart is a good thing, and it's a nice charitable thing, but there's no dawn in it. See, you're, you're not going to get God's favor because you gave people money or the change that was in your wallet. See, it's not your riches. There's no dawn in it. And the first truth about the Christmas light is this, is that it comes from without. It comes on the outside. It doesn't come from the inside. It doesn't come from you being moral. It doesn't come from you being religious. It doesn't come from you being righteous. It doesn't come from you being kind or nice or faithful or a good American. None of those things. The very powerful point of the text is that it only comes from God. God has to bring light into your darkness, and he does it through unexpected sources. Lastly, can I say to you this? Maybe the most important. Christmas light doesn't just come from unexpected sources. It comes, in verse 1, from unexpected, in unexpected ways. Can you see the contrast in the verse, chapter 9, verse 1? In the former time, circle that, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, in other words, in our, you know, in our recent time, the former time, not too far removed from us, Here's what happened geographically. But in the latter time, when the latter fulfillment comes, when the Messiah, which everyone knew this text in Isaiah 9 was all about the coming Messiah, in the latter time, here's what he's going to do, it says. He's going to make glorious the way of the sea and the, and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. See, the geography lesson that Isaiah is giving us is the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun was the area that the Assyrian raiders would come across the desert. You can't come across this way into Israel. Syria here, Israel here. You can't come across because you couldn't make it. It's just too, there's no water, there's no food. You can't come across. So you have to come up and go around like this. And that means you have to enter through northern Israel. And the land of Zebulun and Naphtali is northern Israel. And that's the land known as the land of darkness, the land of defeat, because that's the first people who fell to the Assyrians when they came and invaded. 
He says, that's what happened in former times. That's what's happening in our land. That's where they're going to, and it's going to be known in that day as a land of darkness because that's where we lost our lives and we lost our nation and we lost our freedom. He says, but here's what God's going to do when the light's going to dawn. You know what's going to happen? He's going to make glorious the land beyond the Jordan by the sea. It's the land of Galilee. And he even says Galilee of the nations. But that was known as a despised place. And even in Jesus' day, it says when he told people he was Jesus of Nazareth, could anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus spent his ministry around Capernaum and the cities around Galilee in the, land, in the land of the north. And here's what he's saying. In unexpected ways, the place that everyone despises, the place that is noticed or, or, or marked off by darkness, he says that's the source where the light's going to come from. See, that's God. It's the unexpected ways that God brings light into the world. He changes the world in places and with people that you never thought that could ever happen. See, that's what Matthew does with this text. Can you hold your finger here? In Matthew chapter 4, can I read it with you? Matthew 4, verses 15 and 16, Matthew quotes this Isaiah passage verses 1 and 2 of nine, Isaiah 9, in his gospel. And he quotes them about Jesus. Isaiah, I mean, Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Remember what I told you? The only light that can change your darkness is God. Let me sharpen that a little bit more. The only light that can change your darkness is what God did in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And men, according to him, his own mouth, in John 3, as he talked to Nicodemus, a very religious person, a Pharisee, he says the problem is that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came to bring light to the world. But the men love darkness, and Jesus realizes that. And he comes to take care of our deep, deep darkness. See, we could never save ourselves. We could never handle the darkness of our sin on our own. Jesus, the Messiah, had to come. He is the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. He is the one who comes into our darkness, but the unexpected way that he came, a man from Nazareth, a man who was born to poor parents. It's totally unexpected. He wasn't born a king on a throne. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born to dirt poor parents. He was put in a feeding trough. He lived the life of a peasant. He was under a nation that was a slave nation. And he came and he lived a slave's life and died a slave's death naked and ashamed on a cross. And God says, that's it. That's the way light shines into darkness. And it is not the way the world wants to see it. It's not the way that they want their salvation to be designed. They don't want to look to a Savior hanging on a cross like that. 
And perhaps you're here this morning and you know and you every day pretty much experience the darkness from without and from within and you understand the struggles and the problems. You understand how deep and thick the darkness is. Can I tell you, look away from the world. Look away from yourself. Look away from your righteousness or your riches or your religiosity. No longer allow Satan to blind you because of your intellectual abilities or your scientific capacities. Would you look away from trying to solve your sin yourself? Would you look to a Savior, the Messiah, God himself, who came in unusual and unexpected ways to die on the cross to dispel your darkness? I I love the fact about how Matthew's gospel ends. In Matthew 27, in verse 45, it says, As Jesus hung on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, that from the sixth hour, which was noon, until the ninth hour, which was three o'clock, which is the very time that the the sacrificial lamb was killed in the temple was three o'clock, that it says the whole land was covered in darkness. That's no accident. The scriptures want to tell us that when Jesus was dying on on the cross for our sins, that the whole land was covered in darkness. You know why? Because that's why he came. The first Christmas, the real Christmas, is a Christmas that happened in the dark. And the reason why he came and the reason why he died is for your darkness and mine. Your sin and mine. I'm so grateful to tell you that that's not how the story ends. You know how Matthew's gospel ends? Listen to these wonderful words. Put new meaning on on them in your heart. Matthew 28 and verse 1 says, At the tomb, as the stone has been found to be rolled away, it says these very words, It was the first day of the week at the beginning of the dawn. The dawn. Can you see this? See, there's no dawn in you. There's no dawn in the world in which we live. There is no dawn in your righteousness and your religiosity. You know where the dawn is to be found? It's to be found in Jesus. He came and dispelled the darkness, and you know what he brought with him? He brought the dawn. He brought a new day. He brought a new way. He brought that so that he could make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And and here's the hope. Here's the hope that no matter how deep your darkness is, no matter how long you've walked in it, no matter what repercussions and consequences have taken place because of it, that you are not beyond the conquering power of the light and dawn of Jesus Christ. His cross, death, and resurrection can dispel even the worst darkness, the deepest darkness. Pastor Walker, you don't know what my darkness consists of. You, You don't know. My family doesn't even know all the things that I'm into. Can I tell you this? It doesn't matter. That's what the message and the meaning of Christmas is. That the world is a dark place, and the first Christmas happened in the dark, and here's why. So that you and I could have hope. That the darkness is not all there is. There is light in the darkness. There is forgiveness of sins. There is a hope that our lives could be different, not just for now, but for eternity. And maybe you're here this morning and you have given up on any hope. And you've looked around and all you see is more and more darkness. Can I tell you, there's light in Jesus Christ.
There's light in the Savior. There's light in the world. And it hung on a tree. Not a, Christian, not a Christmas tree, but a crucified tree for you and for me. Would you come to that light this morning? He bids you come. He's calling you, Peter says, out of your darkness and into his marvelous light. If, if God, through his word and spirit, is speaking to your heart today and you want to leave the darkness and come to the light, would you just stick around after the service today? Come and say, Pastor Walker, tell me about the light. I'll be glad to spend some time with you. If you're listening today and you're not here in the service, but you'd like to talk with someone in person or over the phone, say, I need to know more. The darkness is overwhelming. My, I need the light that comes only from God through Jesus Christ. Would you come and talk to us? We'd love to share the light of the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, I, I, I wonder this morning, are there some who are here? And I, I obviously can't see on the internet if this is true, but in person I can, in the balcony, in the main floor. And you're here, maybe you come all the time, maybe this is one of the first times you've been here, but neither, either way, you might say, Pastor Walker, I, I'm not sure if I have the light of Jesus. And by that, I do not mean whether you asked him in some sort of prayer years ago. I'm asking you, has the light come into your darkness? Have you stopped loving the darkness and instead you love the light? Do you have hope beyond, beyond this world? With every head bowed and every eye closed, you say, Pastor Walker, I'm not sure that I have the answer to that question. I'm not sure that I have hope. And Jesus, I, I really couldn't tell you to be honest with you. Would you just slip your hand up right where you are on the main floor or in the balcony? And I would like to pray for you, not out loud by name, even if I knew your name, I wouldn't, but would you just slip your hand up? I'll pray for you that God would give you the courage and the humility to seek the light by his grace. Anyone while we wait just a moment? Anyone? Father, Thank you for the meaning of Christmas. Not, not the meaning that has been dumbed down and watered down around us by our culture and has divorced basically everything about you from it, but the real meaning of Christmas, that there is a real darkness and there's also a real light and that light has invaded the darkness and has shined into our hearts and lives and now for the first time through Jesus, we can see, we can understand, we can really know what life is all about. For those who are here and are still puzzled by that, upset by it, perhaps even offended by it, use that in their lives, that by your grace they might seek the light and come to the light, that they might be born again. Use that in our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.